Today we're actually starting a brand new series. Uh, We're going to be working our way through the book of Acts. Well, actually we're going to be doing that over over three years, but we're going to be looking at just chapter 1 through to about halfway through chapter 11 up until August this year. So that's where we're up to. It's what we normally do. We normally do preach through books of the Bible. Um, Some people have commented that I've when I was doing one of our topical series, I was a bit overly apologetic each week, saying this is not what we normally do. Um, but there's nothing wrong with topical sermons, but uh, primarily we do preach uh, through books of the Bible. So let us open up in prayer as we get started. Heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning, not just people who want to be better educated about the Bible, but it's the people who uh, deeply want to know you more intimately, who our God is, what he has done, what he has provided for his people. Lord, we pray as we look to the book of Acts and we see the, the massive growth of the church and your work through ordinary men and women, we pray that we might be encouraged, that we might uh, have the very prayer of our own hearts, that we might want to see this happen in our own lives. But Lord, that we might want to see a revival, we might want to see... Uh, impact the work of your spirit working through your people to draw people to yourself. We don't want to just learn about what you've done in the past. We want to um, call upon you that you might be pleased to to work in us today to the same effect. Teach us, encourage us up, build us up, help us to trust you more dearly today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go through history, you'll find that throughout the world history there's been people who have pioneered things that have dramatically changed society. You think about people like William Wilberforce and what he did to the abolition of racial slavery. You might think of the work of someone like Fred Hollows and the work he did in volunteering his time and skills to help people in underprivileged areas to help regain sight through simple medical procedures. But often we hear when people continue in the same line of work as those people, people use expressions like, the work of Fred Hollows continues today. But even though we know what they mean by that expression, what they mean is that somebody else is carrying on the legacy of another person. They're not saying that Fred Hollows is actively involved in doing these things today or William Wilberforce. But as we come to the book of Acts and we see the beginnings of the church, we are not looking at what is people just carrying on the legacy of Jesus. This is the actual active work, ongoing work, of Jesus Christ by his Spirit through his apostles. So I said earlier, I'm excited to return to preaching through a book of the Bible because I believe it should be the staple diet in terms of church preaching. It's the same in our own personal lives, that we read through books of the Bible from start to finish, so that we understand things in their right context, so that we're exposed to the whole counsel of God. Because we all know if we just picked and choose things here and there, we're just going to choose the bits we want to hear, aren't we? But as we go through books in their entirety, we let the word of God itself teach and provide its own agenda. Now, you'd like to think there's got to be a reason for choosing a book. Well said, you could say that the Bible does say of itself that that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. 
So in that sense, that all of the Bible is good. But as a leadership, we have a strong desire to see Eastgate grow as a church. And when I say grow, I'm not just talking about people who get sick of their church and changing church. That's, that's not something I'm excited about. That's not kingdom growth. That's just people going from one church to another. But we would desire to see a church that would grow by everyday people of God carrying out and joining God in his mission to bring the good news of the gospel and seeing the church grow and the kingdom grow by people entering into the kingdom for the first time. For those who have been doing our discipleship training school, which is like a disciple-making training thing that we've been doing in our community groups, you've heard the expression time and time again, the basic call for all Christians is that we are disciples of Christ and we are called to make disciple-makers. It is also the mission for us as a church. And I can't think of any better place to go for encouragements to urge us on in this work than in the book of Acts. As we see how from the very small beginnings, God worked mightily through ordinary men and women empowered by his spirit to grow and build his kingdom. Because this pathway we're looking towards discipleship and disciple making, it's not our 2018 fad. Even though we're going to look at sections of Acts over the next three years, 2018, 2019, 2020, it's not just a three-year fad and then we've mastered it, but it is to remind ourselves and keep encouraging ourselves, this is at the core of the DNA of who we are, of who we've been called to be. But just like every book of the Bible, there are certain background information, things we need to understand, things like who wrote it, why they're writing, who they're writing to, just so that we interpret the material to the best of our ability as well. It's pretty straightforward in the book of Acts, but I'll briefly mention um, a couple of things just so we understand the book that we're dealing with. Now, the book has commonly been ascribed to being written by the physician Luke, We see a very strong connection between what is called the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts in the way in which they both begin. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely to some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that are being taught. Then as you come to the beginning of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all things that Jesus began to do and teach. So there's no doubt that the author of one is the author of the other, writing to Theophilus. Now, despite the fact that our books of the Bible have the title The Gospel According to Luke, or we have Acts, they are not titles that the original authors gave to them. They are titles that the early church have given to them so they can identify the individual writings. So why do we believe that these things are the work of Luke if it's not in the title that he wrote, and his name is not mentioned in either of the books. There are sections as we go through the book of Acts where we'll see that, that there is descriptions of things happening where the author is saying, we did this, the author and Paul. And we can collate from other writings of Paul that Paul did ministry alongside in these particular ministries with Luke. And when you can conclude Luke is the author of Acts and we see the close connection to um, Luke's gospel then we can see why we attribute Luke to be the author of both of these books. But as to the audience, we don't know too much about this Theophilus to whom it's written to. 
It's a Greek name. It just simply means that God is love. The fact that it's a Greek name would suggest potentially that he's a Gentile. He's not a Jewish person. And we're seeing the gospel account written by Luke is sort of presenting the gospel, Jesus as the saviour, not only of Jew, but also to the Gentile. And then as we go throughout the book of Acts, we see how the gospel goes to the Jew first, and then we see the Gentiles also brought into the broader community of God's household and God's people. But when it comes to the dating, basic common sense, let's make sure you get this one right in your English classes, you can't be any earlier than the last event from which you've described. I remember I always used to get in trouble doing that in primary school. You write a story where you died and then you talked about all, all the things that happened after you died and they realised that that doesn't quite work. But the last thing described in the book is Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome, which was roughly around 60 to 61 AD. So it can't be any earlier than that. But the book finishes on a pretty optimistic note. It finishes saying that that Paul proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom without hindrance. And given there was major Roman persecution from 64 onwards, you can probably presume with that positive ending that it was before the year 64. So we're thinking around about 62 to 64 AD. But it covers everything from Jesus' um, resurrection appearances, his ascension, all the way through to about 30 years later and to Paul's imprisonment in Rome. But if I was to give you the basic message of the book of Acts, there's probably no better founding point than chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Not only does that lay the foundation and the mission of the book of Acts, it actually forms something by way of the structure of the book of Acts as well. Because we see from chapters 2 to 7... We see them being these witnesses in Jerusalem. Then chapters 8 to 12 to all Judea and Samaria and 13 to 28, primarily under Paul's ministry, um, to the ends of the world. Over Easter, we saw and we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we saw how Jesus appeared, resurrected to many people on one occasion to over 500 people at once. But what we saw is that seeing the risen Christ transformed his followers dramatically. From a group of men who were in fear, who were timid, who were hiding away, to a group of men who were going out boldly declaring as a necessity the good news of what Jesus Christ has done and the importance of his death and resurrection to every single human being. And as we launch into the book of Acts, we're going to see Jesus at work powerfully in the lives of ordinary, everyday people. And I want us to catch a sense of the awe of Jesus at work, what he's done then, but also of the Jesus who still is at work today. And that we would be praying that, God, you would be at work doing these things in our midst amongst our own ordinary people too. So here is where we're headed this morning. In verses 1 to 5, the continuing work of Jesus. Verses 6 to 11, the kingdom building spirit. And verses 12 to 14, devoted to prayer. Now we've already seen in the opening verse of Acts, we see the connection back to Luke's gospel. There's also something very important in the first verse you could easily miss just by quickly skim reading. 
when he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's saying, in my gospel account, that was a record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Introducing this book here that we call Acts as being what Jesus continued to do and teach through his apostles by his Holy Spirit. That's why the title that the early church gave it, the Acts of the Apostles, isn't really a good title for the book. Because the central focus is not the apostles themselves. Some often go for an alternative thing and call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But even still, that's kind of ignoring what the author himself says. I know it would make a really long title to call it the Acts of Jesus Christ by his Spirit through the apostles, but that would describe the content of the book of Acts probably a little bit more accurately. In 1 Corinthians 15, which we looked at Easter Sunday, we see mentioned about various resurrection appearances, including that time to more than 500 at once. But Acts is the only book where it speaks about how it was a 40-day period where Jesus made regular appearances to people and also taught his apostles during this period of time. But during those 40 days, the book of Acts tells us he did many convincing proofs. Now, this word convincing proofs translate a phrase that basically means evidences for which there can be no other possible explanation. That Jesus was indeed risen and it was a physical, bodily resurrection. We see in verse 4 how he was eating with the disciples. If you've got an ESV, which we primarily use here, might just say living with. I'm not sure why they've chosen to translate that as living. But we've got other accounts that the ESV does speak about Jesus eating the, the fish there out on the beach as well. But during 40 days, offering many convincing proofs and teaching his apostles. I love the way the biblical writers alternate so quickly. Disciples, apostles, disciples, apostles. Disciples meaning learners of Christ. Apostles meaning sent ones. And I think it's a general connection you can make that those who are learners of Christ learn Christ in order to be sent, to become teachers of others. And the focus of Jesus' teaching is no different than the way in which he began his ministry. He taught them regarding what? The kingdom of God. When we went through our series looking at the overview of the biblical message, what did we say was the central theme from start to finish? The kingdom of God. So Jesus spoke and taught the apostles regarding the kingdom of God and the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. And when you think about it, they are two essential ingredients for the ministry of the apostles, aren't they? The kingdom of God was the message they brought. And the promised Holy Spirit was the power by which that message was brought and it changed lives. Those who have been doing the discipleship training school, either in uh, the community group or just watching the material online, will be familiar with the command that Jesus said to his apostles. Wait here until you have received the Holy Spirit. Or in Luke's Gospel account it says, Wait here in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, when you see these things in Luke and Acts, they're not two separate events giving you different descriptions of things. But as he comes to a conclusion in Luke 24, he's now just summarising that again in Acts chapter 1. It's the same event being described. But the point is this. 
The mission which Jesus is sending his apostles out on is not dependent upon their personal skills and ability. He says, don't go out and do it. If you don't have the power of my spirit, go nowhere. Wait till you've been clothed with the power which you need to essentially go out to carry out the task which I've given you. And that's the same for us. That's the same for any ministry. It's not our skills, abilities or gifts that do a single thing. We need to remember that. We need to depend upon God's power and God's provision, God's leading. But as Jesus taught about the kingdom and about the spirit, there are some close connections if you look through Old Testament prophecy that tie these two themes together. And then as Jewish teaching progressed between the Old Testament scriptures and when we get to the time when Jesus is doing his earthly ministry, you see that the rabbinic teaching had got to a point where they'd made a connection between the kingdom of God as being some sort of political, geographical kingdom and they associate that it was going to be accompanied by some work of God's spirit. So you notice throughout Jesus' ministry, he's regularly saying the kingdom of God is like this because the common prevailing thought of the day was something very different than what Jesus had in mind. And the apostles themselves were not immune to this sort of background of teaching. As we look at the kingdom-building spirit in verses 6 to 11, we see in Acts 1-6 them asking this very question. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So as he's spoken about kingdom and spirit, they think, oh, hang on, I know how this works, I've heard all this teaching. And you might think Jesus doesn't answer their question real good. He doesn't mention Israel in his answer. But he does answer their question. And he uses it also as an opportunity to teach. John Calvin is often quoted as saying, there is as many errors in their question as there are words. They speak about, when will you restore? What does it mean to restore something? It means to go back to something which was beforehand. Because in their mind, they're thinking a political, geographical kingdom. Remember when we went through our overview of the Bible and saw the role of the monarchy in God's overall plan of salvation? It was pointing to a greater fulfilment in Christ. It wasn't to go back to repeat the same thing again. They said, when we restore the kingdom to Israel, so their expectations were national, territorial, and their timing, they were expecting now. And Jesus' response addresses all of those things. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in terms of the extent of the kingdom, it's not territorial, it's not national, it is to the ends of the earth. Regarding the timing, it's not just now, and it's not your role to know the timing, it's God's appointed time. I mean, the the kingdom came as Jesus came, but there there is an ongoing unfolding, as Jesus spoke about the kingdom being like a mustard seed that will grow and like leaven. There will come a time it will come to its completion as the return of Christ. But even also the nature of the authority, rule and power being expressed, he says, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. That Jesus will rule from his throne and his power will be expressed through his people 
by his spirit. So he didn't just correct the misunderstanding. He taught and he commissioned them for their role. When he set out their role, he said, you will, not you might, you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you. They're almost synonymous. To receive the spirit is to receive the very power of God. When do you receive the Spirit? Well, according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you trust in him, we receive the promised Holy Spirit. So if you've come to trust in Jesus Christ, you have received the Spirit, you have received that power, that same Spirit, that same power. The apostles didn't receive some limited edition to be sold on eBay for an exorbitant amount at a later time impartation of the Spirit. And then the result of receiving this spirit, receiving this power, you will be my witnesses. Did you notice the flow there? You will receive the spirit, you will receive power, and the result is you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then as Jesus has given them their mission, King Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father through through the clouds to the right hand. The apostles there gazing up into the sky. And in all fairness, for this 40-day period, Jesus has sort of done a bit of coming and going and they might think, is he coming back again? But just like the last significant event in Jesus beforehand, his resurrection, there is an announcement by two men dressed in white, angels appearing to them, saying this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you to heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So they're left without any doubt if they're thinking, oh, he's been coming and going quite a lot. The angel's announcement is he has gone to the right hand of the Father. Next time he comes back, he'll be coming back with the clouds and with glory. It will be his final return. That doesn't mean he's absent and uninvolved until now. We've seen that the book of Acts and even the ongoing through history is the work of Jesus through his people, by his spirit, reigning from his throne in heaven. And when he does return in glory, it says this Jesus will return in the same way. He will return visibly. He will return personally. He will return with the same physical glorified resurrection body that the apostles saw at that point in time. Now there's no need to push the the same way too far to the extent of saying it will be at the exact same geographical location and therefore only visible to a certain small number of people. It's the way Paul speaks about it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In verses 12 to 14, we see what the apostles did in the 10 days between his ascension to the right hand and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. They're not just sitting around thinking, I know he said the Spirit's coming, let's just twiddle our thumbs, see what happens next. It says, they were together, all in one accord, fervently in prayer. Now it doesn't tell us the details of the, the content of their prayer. Perhaps they were praying regarding this material that Jesus had been teaching about the nature of his kingdom. Or maybe they're praying and pleading with God regarding the sending of the Spirit that he said would come not too many days from now. Sometimes I think it's a valuable reminder. 
even the very things that God has promised us, he calls us to ask him for them, to plead with him for it, to seek him in prayer for those things. But of the people who are gathered there, you see a list of the apostles, minus Judas, which prepares us for the addition of uh, Matthias into the Twelve a little bit later in the chapter. But we see a greater group of people, greater group, about 120, including women. And the biblical accounts of the day, people often say that the Bible is so anti-women. It did so much in Jesus' ministry in the beginnings of the church to liberate women. In the very plan of God, it was his plan that it would be women who would be the first to witness the empty tomb. There were women gathered together, part of this greater group of disciples. Paul speaks of women who contended side by side with him in the cause of the gospel. And part of those women we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. You might think, oh yeah, family reunion, it's a good time to get together. Let's not forget, Mark chapter 3, John chapter 7, Jesus' own brothers did not believe Jesus. But now, after Jesus has been raised, they are amongst the greater group of disciples who believe and trust in who Jesus was. We don't know whether all four of them saw the risen Christ, the only one who's actually described as having seen him as James in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 of the brothers. But all have come of his brothers to trust in Jesus. It's a phenomenal introduction to a book. To see the expectation that is there, that God has a plan through these guys. We've seen them fail so many times throughout the Gospels. But we've all read the book. We all know what happened as God used those men and women for his glory. But sometimes I think we can have a tendency to read through the book of Acts and think, Ah, Acts, that's the glory days of the church. If only I was there during the life and ministry of the apostle. Things would be wonderful. I'd encourage you potentially to read the rest of the New Testament and the letters written to individual churches and see that a lot of the churches weren't quite that pleasant places to be. They had all sorts of messy things going on in them. But just as Luke says, his gospel account was not the end of all that Jesus did, neither is the book of Acts the end of all that Jesus did or is doing. There still is the same Jesus, still enthroned in heaven, still bestowing the same Holy Spirit on all who trust in him and providing with the same power, calling him to the same mission, for calling us to be dependent upon his spirit, pleading with him in prayer that he would be pleased to work through us to achieve his good and glorious purposes. I've been challenged on that throughout the week regarding the nature of prayer just before the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this to his people. And when you pray, don't heap up words and phrases as the Gentiles do, for that they think they'll be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Have you thought about that? That God knows our every need before we ask, yet he calls us to ask him for it. There are even places where the scripture says you don't have because you don't ask. There are many things the Bible has promised to his people. God says, I want you to ask me for it. I want you to trust that I can provide you with these things. 
I was encouraged and I shared a, a quote from Augustine on Facebook during the week. Um, it was funny, I ended up having a really interesting conversation with my hairdresser about it because we'd been friends on, on Facebook and she totally misunderstood it. But still, it, it provided a wonderful pathway to a conversation about the nature of prayer and the nature of our God. But the general premise of it is that we need to be praying that God would grant in us the very things that he promised. If we trust that he is good to his word, then we should be able to trust that we can come before him and ask him for those things. Now it's got me thinking and pleading with him. God, you have called me to be your child. You have called me to be your witness. Your gospel still is the power of God for salvation. I want you to embolden me to go out into my neighbourhood, wherever we are, and I want you to do that thing you do for your glory to call the people to yourself. The quote of Augustine was this, God does not ask us to tell him our needs so that we can learn in order that he may learn about them, but in order that we may be capable of receiving what he is preparing to give. He's not asking us to, to ask for things we need just so he can say, oh, that's what you need. He's told us he knows what we need. But in order for us to be prepared and to trust upon him to give us those things that we need. Now, I'm not talking about a sort of name it and claim it or you see it happen once in the Bible and you can say, that's, that's mine, God give it to me. I mean, I can tell you there's things that I've asked for God in prayer and I'm glad he didn't give me those because they were stupid. I pray lots of stupid prayers. I ask for things that I think I need. But he knows what we actually need. But also, I don't want us to be like the apostles, gazing up at the clouds, thinking, this is it. This was a a great moment. Let's just stay here for a moment. Or, Or like they did on the Transfiguration, let's set up some tents and let's just hang here a bit longer. I don't want us to be a people whose focus or gaze is focused on whatever was our spiritual highlight in our life so far and just staying in that moment. As the angel said, he is coming again. He's given us a mission. He's given us the spirit, the the empowering to carry out that mission. Just as Acts records what Jesus continued to do through the apostles and through others, My prayer for us is God would stir in us to turn to him so deeply, to cling to him, to know him more deeply than we ever have before. That we would desire to engage with him in his mission, pleading with him in prayer, trusting in his spirit and and asking for him to work in us to bring about a good fruit for his glory. That we would look back and we'd be able to say amongst the community of our people here, We can speak of a time that Jesus continued to do through the everyday, ordinary people of Eastgate who were dependent upon him, trusting in him, pleading with him in prayer to do the things that he has promised to do. And we will continue in the book of Acts next week. Heavenly Father, it's very easy just to be a day-to-day Christian doing day-to-day mundane things. You haven't called us to a day-to-day mundane life. You haven't just called us to to bear a title and then eventually go see you face-to-face one day. 
You have given us a mission. You have given us the enabling for that mission. And you have placed us in a world where there is an abundance, where the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Lord, you call us to to pray, to raise up workers. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up amongst our own numbers a people who would uh, deeply desire to, to join in your mission, who would throw aside all their personal doubts about their ability or the nature of their personality or, or even the way in which we perceive people around us as possibly not going to be at all responsive. But Lord, that we would plead with you, that we would trust you at your word, and Lord, that you would even surprise us for what, by what you do through ordinary, everyday people, just as you have done before that you would continue to do. You have not finished your work and you will not finish your work until you return again in glory. Lord, we pray for the growth of your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' precious name, amen.